Coming live from New York, USA is our guest tonight. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Irina Sukerman, human rights and national security lawyer, a geopolitical analyst, as information warfare specialist, and she is the president of Scarab Rising, a unique advisory company specializing in media communications, reputational management, and security strategy. Welcome to the show, Irina. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we'll be talking about the nature of information warfare today in the present world and what are the tools that are being used by whoever it is who is doing whatever they are in terms of whatever reason that is behind them. Uh, in terms of understanding from a layman's perspective, Irina, what is information warfare in today's time? Earlier, uh, there were only a few tools, but there are huge number of things that can be used today uh, from anything to anything. So we'll leave it to you to help us understand uh, that from the scratch. What is information warfare today's time? Uh, well, in general term, information warfare can be understood uh, as manipulation, distortion, uh, or destruction of data and information to demoralize a particular target, an adversary, um, to strengthen one's own position, um, to create confusion, to obfuscate uh, a particular scenario and there are indeed various tools propaganda is what most people think of uh, propaganda quite simply means planted information and it could be planted by state or non-state actors including private parties uh, for their own interest in the business context uh, we also have a concept of psychological war warfare which is more of a military or intelligence uh paradigm uh which includes uh aiming, uh, it, it can be positive in the sense of winning hearts and minds of a particular population, but it also, also could be negative in the sense of destroying um, a target psychologically, um, using uh, operational, um, operational forms of control to impose your own um, agenda on them, for instance, inciting separatism, um, controlled chaos was a common uh, Cold War technique of attacking smaller countries that were considered satellites, proxies, or spheres of influence of a larger uh, state, inciting chaos there in order to put pressure on the bigger uh, power, superpower. Uh, there is also, of course, uh, not only communication focused, uh, but a cyber, uh, cyber uh, warfare, which includes uh, the use of uh, electronic signal attacks on the target's infrastructure or cyber cyber capabilities in order to uh, weaken their um, their positions in that way or to extract information either for intelligence gathering purposes or usually uh, to disseminate or to distort to create a scandal to embarrass uh, the target um, and uh, information warfare slips into hybrid warfare, which also uh, includes may include um, the use of electronic capabilities such as GPS jamming, 
uh, to prevent once the enemy's devices from carrying uh, out their operations or from carrying uh, messaging operations in a particular way from destroying the possibility of locating um, uh, whatever needs to be located. Uh, it could also include political means, uh, which go beyond planted propaganda, basically uh, disinformation or fake news, uh, um, whether in election contest or just simply uh, print, print media or uh, television false messaging, basically. Um, it could mean political campaigns, influence campaigns, active measures, uh, various forms of interference, whether in the country's uh, political system, uh, whether targeting something specific or more broadly trying to destroy uh, the target from within. So all of these tools are at the disposal. And I'd like to underscore that whereas during the Cold War, for instance, it was a very simple bipolar bipolar case of um, two superpowers, the Soviet Union and uh, the US and their allies going at each other through various means. Today, we are living in a far more complicated world uh, where many of the alliances are temporary or partial, where many state and non-state actors work together from time to time on different things and where today's ally is tomorrow's enemy on some other issues so very often we will see very complicated alliances in terms of information warfare and we should not uh analyze this in um this strategy the same way as previously just assume the source of that information or very uh, uh or assume a very simple motivation sometimes motivations range from economic interests in a particular third uh, third state to disabling a head of state from becoming functional to undermining intelligence capabilities of a country to bringing another political party to power so all of these uh things can actually be behind seemingly uh, uh low level operations or noise um that go far beyond just instigating chaos or creating or misleading or deceiving population towards some end there are usually complex political geopolitical and economic and social uh motivations and sometimes ally these allies are very strange bedfellows you can you have alliances of people of different political religious sectarian and social backgrounds coming together uh usually people who not only not not have anything in common but would be advers adversarial to each other to ally on a particular issue or more often than not against a particular target right Irira, right now let us look at the world uh since two uh since the world war uh two it was a different world at that point in time then it was the time of cold war and it went on for quite a long time. But then the world has changed today. It is about all sophisticated tools of information. But the big change that has happened is that economies and countries and systems, they are so closely intertwined that today you may differ on something, tomorrow the other uh, the same uh, country or people will be needed for something else, which is even crucial 
than what you are differing on. And in, in politics, as they say, that there are no permanent friends and not permanent enemies, but only permanent interests. In the backdrop of these two things, who is the enemy here? How does a country know, apart from, you know, the countries where you had historical differences with, or play people, or a country which you had, which you know that you need to work with, but you need to be strong at the same time. So that's sort of a, uh, you know, warfare or, or competition in the backdrop keeps on happening. But how do, how does one know what, who is the enemy here? Let's look at the world today without going into politics. We'll not take our discussion towards politics, but just to understand the relationship between the US and China. They are strong trade partners, but at the same time, mm -hmm. they look at each other in a very different manner. And sometimes with concern, sometimes, so a lot of voices keep on coming. The same with the, with, uh, in respect to the United Nations, U US, as well as Russia. Then again, in terms of the international relations of US with a lot of other countries in the Middle East, even in the Asia in in Asia and if you look at it from a background of what uh, former uh, president uh, Mr. Carter said that US uh, is the most warlike nation in the history of the world now there might be uh, different voices in the US about this particular uh, statement of Carter sometime back but across the world people will look at it with their own notions of how they have experienced U.S. in their own uh, history. In this backdrop, I'm asking too many questions at the same time so that you can, you know, you can respond uh, at your own pace. But the whole idea is that you are a human rights lawyer. You stand for this. So where does human, human, human beings come in when you don't know that there is a permanent enemy anywhere in, in the present day, uh, present day world? How does it work? That's an excellent question, and unfortunately, I have to say, human rights issues only or often are sacrificed to larger interests, though they shouldn't. I believe there is a very strong connection between countries that observe human rights and countries that become threats to world order, to peaceful transactions, to peaceful trade and engagement. Of course, countries can have divergent interests divergent economic, social, and political concerns without becoming adversaries. They can have natural competition uh, for goods and services without uh, um, ending up in a state of conflict. And that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, this sort of comp level of competition is normal and it's helpful so long as all parties um, observe uh, uh, laws, negotiate differences in laws through peaceful diplomatic channels, and otherwise, um, in an ideal scenario, is simply uh, when they do disagree, resolve the differences to legitimate peaceful means. Unfortunately, that is not how it works because not every every country is a democratic country where people decide the course of action. Not every democratic country is a liberal country in terms not in liberal. I don't mean in terms of left leaning specifically, but in terms of um, 
but in terms of observing uh, individual rights and uh, uh, and being dedicated to protection of civil societies and so forth. And not all liberal democratic countries have correct foreign or domestic policies. Sometimes they just make mistakes, miscalculations, or become corrupted, even if the institutions are built to protect human rights or into observe uh, uh, peaceful world order in the process the self-interest of individual parties institutions agencies uh, member uh, officials comes in and overrides national concerns from the legal foundations law and order and causes problems we see it all the time and we see it even sometimes happening between friendly allied uh, states, there are issues that should not be happening, uh, sometimes for bad ideological reasons, for bad structural reasons due to uh, differences or due to third parties instigating tensions uh, where there are, should be none. With regards to the U.S. Uh, dealing with other world powers in other countries with divergent interests, the problem between the U.S. and China is not due to China being a competitor, because potentially there are many com econ growing economies that could be competitors to the United States, and that's a good thing. Not right. everyone may agree with me, but uh, because competition stimulates progress, it stimulates imp internal improvement. When you strive to compete with somebody, you produce better products. The problem between the US and China is the fact that China is not necessarily the current Chinese structure, the current government, and in particular, the representatives of the current government, they do not see competition in the same terms as the United States. They do not see it as necessarily as, uh, as, as economic and fair playing field where all parties should simply produce the best, do the best they can and grow their economies and exchange goods and services and so forth. They are perfectly willing to arrive at their particular internal goals at means that are not acceptable to the US, such as through industrial espionage from which US companies are banned by law, but uh, in China and perhaps other countries that is not, not the case through stealing intellectual property and uh, through assorted forms of political meddling in local communities. Similarly, um, China projects its power not simply through, through only through advantageous economic and political means, though it portrays uh, its strategy in that way, but, through, but uh, by using the, uh, the use of force in the back of these economic and political overtures to smaller developing countries and and also at the expense to u.s interests not as a simple matter of competition and of producing better and more advantageous economic or political programs but um uh, with the use of military or intelligence operations that are considered a security concern so had china been simply a growing uh power um that was just doing better economically uh, it would be fair to say that U.S. concern should be concerning itself with what it's doing on its own part to to keep up, and not with China's uh, uh, and not what, with what China is doing. But because China is in, engaging in forms of aggression and not simply in healthy economic and political 
differences. That's when the problem starts. Uh, we can compare the situation with India, which is also a growing power, experiencing economic boom and potentially becoming a, a competitor to US on, uh, on many issues, but we do not see the same level of concerns, not simply because India is not yet in the same position of uh, influence as China economically, but also because India does not necessarily strive to dominate the world through military means, nor to... Yeah, it has never uh, been... It's never been uh, that thinking historically, actually. It's not, never been like that. Nor to destroy the U.S. from within economically, nor to engage in unfair methods of operation. It's growing, it's competing, it certainly wants to become the best. Sure, it's potentially an economic uh, competitor with a huge market and a huge potential, but that's healthy competition. U.S. should, should then just try to be better and to uh, to to uh, where it cannot be better to cooperate and engage but with china the situation is different and here you will see a political difference in both rhetoric and in action and uh, the, the level of concern is also is also different uh, because uh, healthy competition stops where interference in national sovereignty uh, stops uh, china is perceived to be uh, interfering in U.S. sovereignty by meddling with the diaspora communities, by threatening people on U.S. soil, and by meddling in elections and various forms of operations through information warfare. That is considered an aggressive bellicose action. It's not healthy competition. This is adversarial form of intelligence and adversarial form of information warfare that is not mutually beneficial in any way. So that that's why China is perceived as more of an adversary uh, and less of an ally in any means. Yes, trade can exist even between adversaries, but the US has been moving away from uh, engagement with the Chinese economy and towards uh, more diversified alliances in that respect. For the, uh, US companies individually and without necessarily pressure, just, just pressure by the US government have been naturally moving out first towards cheaper markets as the Chinese economy has grown and became more expensive to operate. And second, because China has been imposing um, internal restrictions on foreign com Western companies' operations and making it more difficult to operate and through both economic measures and surveillance. And uh, companies have been moving elsewhere to Vietnam, to India, to Mexico and other, uh, and other developing countries where uh, first of all, it's cheaper to operate, and second, the climate is friendlier and safer, and uh, there is no risk of being expelled, nationalized, or otherwise uh, pressured by the uh, local authorities. Um, in terms of uh, U.S. militarization, uh, quite frankly, U.S. has always been expected to play a role of the world policeman. That's not to say that I'm going to uh, agree with every foreign policy and every issue by the U.S. Certainly, there's been a lot of wide-ranging mistakes in the Middle East, um, Southeast Asia, elsewhere. But for overall, and leaving aside just miscalculations, ineptitude, incompetence, poor intelligence, gathering poor, uh, poor solutions developed as a result, the U.S. has not... Um, has not been looking to colonize the world. It has not been looking to uh, necessarily uh, only enrich itself at the expense of others. And more often than not, 
it had legitimate grievances uh, with particular aggressor actors, even if the resolution of those particular situations has not always been uh, well executed. That's not to say, again, that some administrations have not been more uh, meddlesome than others, or that I agree with their course. But talking about the US foreign policy, it does not look at the aggressive acquisition of territory or natural resources. Now, that's not to say that private parties within the United States do not have that agenda, but I am talking about the US as a country, not specific parties with uh, ulterior motives. And we'll get to that later, because that plays a part in the information, in the very complicated information warfare structure. Ideological right. differences in the US have produced a great deal of polarized approaches uh, with some administrations and, and some segments of intelligence agencies much more willing to interfere with the political course of action in other countries than others. And what that actually means on an individual case by case basis certainly deserves um, a greater scrutiny and discussion. But overall, what that actually what that means for for US politics and human rights, uh, I believe human rights are actually best protected when there is a congenial uh, resolution to conflict situation and political differences. Uh, human rights are most likely to suffer um, whenever the trajectory is towards um, towards chaos and dissolution, unfortunately. Uh, but it takes multiple parties to resolve that. It's not only, I think it's wrong to assign uh, every poorly resolved uh, international situation to U.S. interference or action by the U.S. I think uh, countries should take uh, also um, uh, consider their own agency and the role they've played. And they cannot, even smaller, weaker countries should not be uh, considered mere pawns of any major actor. They do have free will in the sense of how they manage those relationships. And they do have a say in how they want to um, engage with other countries. Right, Irina. Now let's look at again from a, since you are a human rights and national security and geopolitical analyst, and let's look at from a human rights angle. If there is a, a say competition between US and China, but it's a global world. Internet does not differentiate much what is going through it uh, in, in a particular corner unless your government bans a particular site or number of sites. Mm -hmm. So if there is, there is not always a state of conflict. There can be a state of competition and there is a different measure. You can say uh, underlying sort of a competition going on and use of industrial espionage and other sort of thing that is keep on going on. But in terms of uh, the people everywhere, when there is no state of war and there is some sort of a uh, internal uh, competition going on, the people are the biggest victims because you see this leads to a lot of uh, privacy issues. Uh, a lot of fake news being generated because mm -hmm. that becomes a part of that whole propaganda or information warfare, you can say. Mm -hmm. And what about the countries who are not part of this conflict? For example, India. India is so much away from all these things. But 
we always fear when we pick our phones we have a fear that either it is a big tech which is listing everything or it is some chinese company of many many uh, companies from china they sell their phones in india that our all all our personal lives are getting uh, getting an audience to the chinese and the american countries uh, companies now in that state where does our human right stand or i'm in talking in symbolical terms where do human rights of individuals across the world who are not part of this uh, anyway in any manner and there is no state of war it is just a state of competition what happens to that how do you look at that because that leads to the big issue called privacy individual privacy mm-hmm. and uh, and in terms of cyber security also because if two countries are or several countries together are at competition with each other obviously there is an infiltration of bots fake news and other sort of measures which are certainly compromising security of individuals their mm-hmm. banking their personal lives uh, their every communication that they are doing over the internet highway so what differentiates uh, to address the larger point here uh, liberal democratic countries from authoritarian regimes is that the population can push for a degree of transparency uh, in government and even uh, public you know company uh, operations that's not possible where everything is controlled by the government so even if the government is doing something wrong violating the privacy ultimately the law prevails and ultimately there are legal means and there are avenues for holding the government accountable for having a, a public discussion on the issue of be it surveillance or uh, laws uh, concerning company engagement or whatever it may not be easy it may be smooth but at least those avenues exist they're open they're possible and uh, certainly there's at least a chance that justice will prevail and a balance of rights versus security can be achieved in the authoritarian regime uh, there is no such possibility because the only people who control uh, all these avenues are government institutions and whatever they decide uh, comes about. That's why, while uh, uh, that's why uh, third parties, countries who are not necessarily uh, involved in direct tensions with either side nevertheless sooner or later they will still be impacted because uh indirectly and not necessarily by choice but simply uh when you're talking about technologies they're fungible and we're talking about the areas of operation it will naturally happen to be the case uh, right. that... and, and sorry to interrupt the big big tech coming into the picture then we exactly. feel that social media is so much part of our lives and if big tech big tech is are our, our, our US-based company, then we always feel that in this whole gamut of things, you know, never know what is happening at any place in time, but your information is not your information anywhere if you are using that particular technology. I would say that big tech is the single biggest non-state actor of any importance to influence the course of events. And quite frankly, I think they should be considered on par with regimes or governments because i think that it's getting to the point that governments cannot or at least 
democratic governments cannot fully control these institutions. I think they have a mind and an interest of their own. Uh, yes, they, 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 they frequently end up working with or in conjunction authoritarian regimes. But aside from that simple point, they also have their own agenda in which they seek to subsume government institutions rather than being um, regulated by them. And I think that, you know, privacy of in data is only a small part of that. It's a big part in the sense of the financing these operations. And, uh, but at the end of the day, um, it's not just about selling data to advertisers. I think it's getting to the point that big tech uh, agenda is becoming very similar to that of authoritarian regimes in using the data to control content, to control users, to control societies. That's where we are crossing the line between a natural pro profit motive and neutral use of technology for the sake of, you know, market needs to non-state actors becoming similar to state actors and pursuing these agendas and drawing in third countries into these conflicts more so than even uh, the governments are capable of doing so. But uh, the, and these big tech companies, I do believe, they're not neutral in that I do think they side with particular interests in such conflicts. I think they do promote particular narratives in a, and they do uh, regulate who has access to what type of information and who has access to platforms and who has access to social life. They're becoming uh, the, the, the social credit system, which was developed in China. I think big tech is practicing it without being uh, beholden to any particular government. I think they're capable of cooperating whether with the US governments or foreign regimes and have done so as recent revelations by a Twitter whistleblower have done so. But I do think they also have their own focus on consolidating their own power for the sake of being more powerful than states in some regards. But, but you see, if you look at in terms of technology, then not just the big tech, you also understand Israel, how it functions. And you see the Pegasus software. It has and come out of Israel. Now, how, how would you look at that part of things? What has it got? If it were for security, they could have kept for themselves and used it. But it is selling it to governments. What does uh, this show for the world? I am so happy you asked me that question because that brings me to the biggest investigation of my career, which is the circumstances around that particular software and who has an interest in destroying it more so than using it. It's very easy to identify why governments want to use surveillance software for security needs. It's much hard, it's much more interesting who wants it gone and why they would focus on a particular software as opposed to the regime of surveillance itself because there are many ways to surveil a target uh, ranging from physical surveillance you know depending on the resources to assorted and there were there were software that exists from many different countries uh, around the world not just israel but the united states uh china and uh, assorted countries and private actors now, let's talk about, first of all, what Pegasus is before we delve into the discussion. 
Pegasus is a highly regulated, highly sophisticated form of so software. It is sold only to government agencies. It is not sold to private actors at all. And even those clients of the company are selected and they have to have uh, uh, the approval of the Israeli government before, before it's sold. It has actually banned the company from selling it to certain countries. And the company itself has chosen to revoke the license for operating the software from some European countries who were found to be uh, wanting and abusing um, the use, how it actually works. Uh, and so the Israeli company that produces actually has to activate it on its end before their client can use it. And it's a very expensive to operate. It costs uh, between 50 to $160,000 uh, to use, which means that it will be used for exceptionally well uh, circumstances where you cannot use other methods, of which there are plenty, and most countries have a diverse uh, arsenal of um, tools for surveillance. Uh, usually it will, it will be used against very high-level sophisticated threats, top uh, terrorists, highly sophisticated state actors, or criminal enterprises and masterminds, but not your local drug gang street on the corner. You don't need Pegasus for that. We're talking about uh, major, major enterprises with possibly state affiliation. That's the kind of threat uh, Pegasus is aimed. Uh, and, and what differentiates it from other types of software operating on the same principles is that it is untraceable. You cannot actually clearly identified and whoever claims that they did is lying. Um, and there are plenty of people with an interest in lying. Why would they want to lie? First of all, NSO is a competitor to many surveillance companies around the world. It's just how it is. There's competition. And it has had troubles of its own in the sense that it's a number of its past employees ran off having stolen intellectual property and have attempted to develop uh, similar software, but they uh, failed in copying it exactly. So we see imitation versions floating from various countries, but none of them are exactly untraceable in or identical to uh, Pegasus. And Pegasus itself evolved over time, and now new versions are being introduced. Uh, similarly, these people have tried to sell uh, but because they don't have the reputation or the regulatory mechanisms of NSO, which is backed by the US, by the Israeli government, they operate at a lower regulatory standard and they do sell it to private actors and it does end up in the wrong hands. And it is more frequently, these imitation versions of Pegasus are more frequently misused. And because they operate by similar principles, entities that are not intimately familiar with Pegasus technologically can occasionally mistake uh, uh, Pegasus for other form, uh, those other forms of um, software for Pegasus. Just to give you an example, there's been a number of lawsuits pertaining to WhatsApp being allegedly infiltrated by Pegasus, but Pegasus does not work through WhatsApp at all, and it only works through Apple Messenger. Uh, why is Apple so unhappy with, with the company? Why are they suing them? Because uh, and so identified a vulnerability in their product and, and it caused them, it caused them on the market, it caused them. Now, why would other companies 
that don't have any direct connection to NSO at all be against it uh, because they want to control the market on Spyware. They don't want someone having superior expensive product that is relegated to only particular types of crime and setting the standard uh, for that. So you have that competition. You have countries who have been interested in buying the software but unable to procure it either because it's too expensive for them or because Israel or NSO or both refuse to sell it to them. So they themselves can become target of Pegasus without having the means to do the same to their own adversaries. So they will have an incentive of trying to destroy the company and the software and to cause a problem. How can they cause a problem then? By creating an impression that this uh, that in reality, this highly regulated software, which most people don't understand, is actually not regulated well and is being constantly abused and that the company is allowing it to be abused despite its own uh, protocol of action. So what do they do? They disseminate information about that to the media and every they become the consolidate um they consolidate their reputation around that particular issue they become they monopolize the discussion on that particular topic they become the only entity that can speak to that particular issue and they claim that every time there is some sort of a, a scandal that somehow pegasus is to blame they sometimes will plan scandals i'll give you a couple of examples one by the way involving india uh, before i get to india i'll give you a very specific public uh, situation involving spain a democratic liberal country part of the eu not a human rights abuse abusing entity uh, that comes to mind it's not some third you know some uh, country that's gone through a huge civil war or anything like that it's not a failed state it's a normal European country. But it has an internal issue, which is called the Catalonian independence movement. That movement is a political process. And the scandal started with a, a number of mainstream internationally known publications breaking the story that Russian active measures have penetrated that movement and have aligned with the leaders of that movement and assisted them financially through cryptocurrency. Um, Edward Snowden is one of the parties supposedly involved in the process and so on and so forth. Now that's a foreign interference. Any country that sees any foreign actor, be it Russia could, or US or anybody else interfering in their own internal political processes, it will have a national security interest in finding out what's going on and putting a stop. And the, that, that is why Spain admitted to surveilling a number of these people, but not with Pegasus. An organization called Citizen Lab, based in Canada, affiliated with the well-known University of Toronto, claimed that, in fact, Spain employed Pegasus against hundreds of such activists. Now, remember, this is something that costs 50 to $160,000 per use, per person. Can you imagine Spain, which is not the richest of European countries, spending all that money for a few hundred people who are never, by the way, identified in Citizen Lab report? Uh, that's that's absurd. That's inaccurate. And in fact, reporting, uh, exposing this kind of um, 
propagandistic approach to reach the European Parliament, which found this report to be unreliable. The European Parliament continues to investigate the Pegasus issue in other parts of the world, but with respect to that particular report, it has been found wanting. It has been found to be unverifiable, unscientific, not meeting academic standards, and uh, the organization that issued it has refused independent researchers who have been trying to verify uh, their findings. Now, what happened with India? Once again, uh, the same entity issued a finding claiming that over 20 phones uh, belonging to various parties, journals, etc. had been infected with Pegasus. The problem is, who did those phones belong to? They were never said. And so they cannot say whether their reporting is true or not, because we don't know whose phones are in question. The government can say one thing, and these people can say another, and never, and they do not have the control over those phones that they're claiming to be infected, so we don't know what they're even talking about. That is not a serious investigation over, of surveillance. You need to have specific uh, identifiable devices that you can point to and say, these are the devices, they were infected at such and such time, here is the evidence, and here those devices belong to such and such people. This is when it was first reported. That is not the standard that the India report has met. The government has discredited those findings, uh, naturally. And even the even the Supreme Court has uh, given its uh, uh, mm -hmm. assessment of the whole issue. So that thing is is over now in terms of exactly. Uh, and the, India is not an authoritarian regime. It's the largest democracy in the world. You can make and remember and and remember, Irina. I must tell you, India has U.S. has two major parties. We have so many national parties and hundreds and hundreds of regional parties that Quite shows frankly, the level of conspiracy being alleged here by citizen lab is incomprehensible in a country like like india i would sooner believe that happened in the united states than in india just i don't i can't imagine everyone in the government with all these internal differences all agreeing to start this conspiracy to secretly use this extremely expensive maneuver to hunt down a bunch of bad journalists frankly <laughs> you know i can see you know some local police harassing them and asking them questions that they probably shouldn't or whatever i can see something like that happening but spending hundreds of thousand dollars on a bunch of journalists and low-level activists i just don't see it in any way realistic i really think india has much more important national security issues as well as economic issues to take care of and i think that's what they're prioritizing quite frankly you can discuss, for instance, the recent banning of the PFI. That's a major issue. A bunch of low-level journalists who've been, you know, complaining about India for decades. Nobody. It's not. It's not a story. It's not anything worth having a major international scandal over. Not for India. Not for any other country. So all these allegations have been not so much based in the hope that uh, the outcome, uh, you know, that it will lead to any major political outcome inside India, for instance, uh, but it was meant to discredit institutions, to start scandals, to cause embarrassment to particular leaders and to just um, increase tensions between India and other countries concerned about human rights. In that particular case, it clearly was a very 
uh, very failed failed effort but it also failed in spain but this this is where those actors succeeded when the intelligence chief in spain admitted to surveilling 18 alleged uh russian you know assets inside that movement he was forced to resign now the question is if there is a real national security threat which justifies surveillance why would you have the you know and greece made the same mistake uh, likewise there was a, a scandal over one political oppositioner being surveilled and the head of intelligence was likewise was to resign in greece there's a clear effort to bring down the right-wing political government and to bring in the pre previous le left-leaning uh, party to power this is very obvious what's happening because the focus is on a particular opposition party in spain the government is mixed but there was an attempt to discover that particular uh, right-wing parties that are rising politically there and quite frankly in india there's really no chance to have a significant political impact but it was to add more pressure on the modi government which is currently very popular there is an economic boom internally there was no zero chance that most people would side with these allegations but externally if it could disrupt uh india's growing relations with for instance western countries that are concerned about human rights and so forth and maybe bring india closer for instance to in to russia and china that typically don't express such concerns about other countries um uh, sure that that may provide motivation uh, remember snowden the russian agent uh was uh, assisting in spain and russia uh so russia's involvement in this pegasus story is very clear and he has been uh close with the founder of the organization debert run debert since 2012 uh, debert was one of the beneficiaries of snowden's uh data dump at the time and okay. now russia has a concern political concern over india um there was an admonishment at the prime minister's level about the war in ukraine there's been a, a close co defense cooperation uh and india has shifted from relying solely on russia to being more of a, a multilateral ally to a number of different countries and institutions and when you have this rivalry geopolitical rivalry and you want a major actor to come to your side you don't want them playing you know working with everybody you just you want to monopolize that relationship if you're uh, especially if you're an authoritarian regime and especially if you're losing ground politically elsewhere as russia is because it has not been able to succeed in ukraine the way it planned it is seen as losing influence overall it is not yet completely destroyed economically it has enough resources to continue making a major impact but it has lost political and economic influence significantly and it is vital for russia to retain right. india as a primary ally which will not happen if india con continues um shifting to the west so you cause a scandal to embarrass india and to cause the us and other western countries to distance themselves or to ask questions or to cause you know uh this thing to that's why india is constantly being maligned in western newspapers is undemocratic these newspapers by the way that are most frequently attacking india specifically are are you ready for this part of an officially announced medium consortium 
focused on Pegasus. Is that a coincidence? Hardly. The same group of newspapers attacking India in the West is also proliferating Pegasus allegations all over the world. There is a political collusion there between a variety of different interests, and it's not coincidental at all. It's highly organized, highly effective, but also somewhat sloppy information warfare. It's effective in that it correctly assessed psychology of different societies and different people, but it's in it's sloppy because they did not uh, count on the fact that anyone would ever start asking questions or looking closer at their methodology or notice patterns. And, and they became more sloppy over time as their geopolitical greed has increased and as they became more successful. That often happens. Right. Right, Irina. Uh, see, you have such a vast experience. You know, you were born in Ukraine, then you were raised in U.S. You had a come has a you have academic background in Middle East, North Africa, and you have traveled so much across the world. And you know so much about human rights. You know so much about uh, information security, and also are fighting for uh, a lot of other uh, issues that concern human rights. So. In this backdrop, what does a general citizen anywhere in the world do? Whether he's part of any of the uh, places where there is a competition going on, uh, or if it's a country like India, which is not anywhere in the, in the picture. We are a non-aligned nation. And so what should a person like me do? Should I go to the jungles if I need to protect my, my information, my privacy? What should I do? What are the available tools for me that I avoid the tools used by people or countries uh, for their surveillance purposes and for their information, uh, you can say, warfare? That's they are using. Privacy is as much behavioral as it is technical. So I would not rely on any particular technical means to uh, protect uh, privacy, although there are tools you can use, such as Signal, a messaging app that is... Uh, the, only, the only tool that I have got is my web security, whatever you call some... Uh... Right. So you can employ a number. You can employ VPNs, such as Nord. You okay. can employ messaging apps, such as Signal. You can even employ very secure browsers, such as Tor, which makes it difficult to trace uh, your exact location or impossible, really. But uh, but it also means modifying your behavior to avoid patterns that make you easily trackable. Simply not doing the same thing constantly in a predictable pattern. Simply understanding that um, you don't need to hack a secure app to gain access to your information. You can hack your laptop. So you need to measure. So you need to uh, be constantly aware of malware and not be. You, you should not give access to your information to third parties, even if you trust them. You should be constantly changing uh, passwords and modifying your behavior and being aware that the human factor is usually the biggest risk factor. And of course, being afraid, being very alert about suspicious sites, links, and so forth, spear phishing is a very, very common method of drawing someone to download or to click on something that they shouldn't and then gaining access to your physical structure but overall there's only so much you can do most important the most important thing to do is to stay aware stay informed stay skeptical and not don't believe everything you think 
in the news, everything that's being every talking right. point, uh, because the most important thing they want to control is not your computer, but your mind. Right, right. To control your mind, whoever it is uh, with their own interests, which are always shifting and, and their uh, uh, adversaries are also shifting with time. No permanent interests, uh, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, but only permanent international interests. That's the world we are in today. And then in this backdrop, uh, you know, you are, you are the president of Scarab Rising, a unique advisory company specializing in media, communication, reputational management, and security strategy. Now, I've been a part of media for the last uh, two, two decades plus, and it gives me a lot of, you know, uh, curiosity to understand what exactly this company uh, that you are heading. Tell us about this and what it is all about, what people can uh, get in touch with you for this particular company. So I noticed uh, the the company was conceived as a result of my observation that a lot of the time clients go to uh, consultants and uh, assorted political operatives for PR function, but those PR functions don't really fulfill their ne needs. Ooh. You can you can place try to place articles, but uh, it's limited unless you're giving in, uh, advice on what the media is really looking for unless it's targeted and, 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 and unless uh, you know what are the specific media obstacles you're facing some of them come naturally from the media cycle and the needs of the market in any particular country city or area but sometimes there are when you're talking about geopolitical international concerns those obstacles are equally you know they involve corrupt interests and not just normal media functions and this is what most media operatives are not able to provide in uh, information warfare it also works both ways as a defensive measure most people are unaware of how to protect their own reputations or what measures to take once they attack and as an offensive measure they don't know that it's not enough to clear your name uh, in court or in the public opinion which by the way is significantly more difficult to do even with uh, court decisions in your favor uh, but uh, but also in to restore public trust, but also how to um, discredit the, the attacking party. It's not always easy. You need to identify who they are, uh, who supports them, where is their source of legitimacy, and why their strategy has worked. And none of these uh, operatives um, are capable of doing that. Geopolitical analysis. There are plenty of. There's no shortage of former government officials and former intelligence operatives providing analysis of major events. And on most issues, they're fairly consistent with each other, but not always, because uh, their perspectives are often in line with particular mainstream functional agendas, which means they're biased. They have blind spots towards threats and realities that somebody cooperates not only within narrow political circles, but who talks to people on the ground in various parts of the world, will be immune to, to a greater extent than, than such people. So I decided to create a tool that's more out of the box, but at the same time, brings in more diverse perspectives and more diverse experiences and more diverse tools to the table than what is expected of, uh, of, uh, uh, of similar types of companies. Right, right. So, Irina, how can people connect with you? You are a, a top lawyer down there in the U.S. You also hold 
this particular company's current pricing. So how do people connect with you? How do they know more about you? How, what's the best way for them to connect either in terms of taking your help, engaging with you or uh, talking to you about human rights or anything else? I have a separate legal practice focusing focused on national security issue. I advise clients on uh, US law and uh, research regarding legal matters that are niche and that they would not typically get from a, from a regular lawyer. So I have a separate website with my name on it. It's focused on a national uh, boutique national security law firm. I Google that combination of words and my name. You'll find my website and uh, my contact information specifically for that. Scarab Rising uh, has my email specifically for client needs, but I am also active on social media. I have a website called uh, the Washington Outsider, uh, which is a project of Scarab Rising meant to highlight uh, diverse perspectives and analysis that uh, that is frequently a result of censorship in the media, not just government censorship, but self-censorship or simply lack of interest or whatnot. Uh, I am a host of a show called The Washington Outsider Report on the Coalition Radio, which is a station in the United States. So um, for those interested in in being a guest as uh, as uh, experts in the area or activists or people with interesting uh, stories to tell that are out of the normal stream of information, they can contact me and we can have a public discussion. And of course, I am uh, on social media. I have a Facebook account. I have a LinkedIn account. I have a YouTube account where you can find a lot of my uh, my media appearances uh, as well as my programs from the Washington Outsider and from the Washington Outsider report i am not however on twitter because as a result of my investigations i was kicked out <laughs> but soon there might be a new owner maybe the rules will change they will be welcome back along with donald trump yeah so there is a there is a many ways for to get in touch with me and i'll, I'll be happy to hear to listen to publish to engage uh, to assist in whatever way I can. Wonderful, wonderful. It was great knowing so much from you, Irina. And also, uh, you are a symbol of women empowerment who has uh, come from Ukraine, uh, raised in US, and you have such a great academic background, and you are doing such a great work in the field of human rights and also in national security, and also looking at uh, different aspects, even from the communication side. So with this, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much for your time. It was great and it was a pleasure to host you on my show. Thank you so much and I appreciate that. I look forward to, to watching the episode.